Welcome to The Tangent. My name is Matthew Sparaza. I am here with Father Sam Kachuba. Today we had the great pleasure of interviewing Gary Machuda about his new book, The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught, published by Emmaus Road Publishing, our good friends over at Emmaus Road. I think we should start calling them our good friends at Emmaus Road Publishing. I yeah. think that's a great move. Yeah. because Our good friends at Emmaus Road Publishing, led by none other than Uncle Scott. <laughs> I have I have found in our communications with with these wonderful folks. First of all, they're really nice. They are really nice. They're really pleasant and and they're super helpful. And they're they're like they're ready to, to join us and to, to support yeah. us and everything. And so I'm very grateful to them. But I'm also I'm loving the stuff that they're that they're putting out here. I think there there are so many good resources that yeah. they're, that they're bringing out. Yeah, I'm I'm. This is not my favorite part of what they're doing, but something that I love about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Their cover art is fantastic. Well, if we understand that the the beauty of the faith needs to be communicated, uh, that how do we how do we perceive beauty? One of the ways in which we perceive beauty is visually. Okay, and so beautiful okay, art. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We got to make it beautiful, top to bottom, inside and out. No, but, you're right. But they're doing a great job of that. Yeah, yeah. I I really enjoyed talking to Gary today uh, because he's first. I think he's just got some some great perspectives yeah. on. On, on the gospel itself, um, and and he was a, it was a good reminder for me, you know, reading this book and talking with him. It, it was a reminder that I kind of because I'm a priest and I'm a pastor, I think sometimes I can get into a little bit of a bubble where I'm mostly dealing with my own parishioners. Mm. I'm not that often. I mean, with people who are coming into the church, yeah. um, who want to who want to become Catholic, there might be some some questions coming up, and so a little bit of apologetic type questions where they yeah. they have an objection to something that the church teaches or to something that's yeah. an interpretation it's that we have fitting. of scripture. I'm not sure if you, do you remember we talked about this like two weeks ago? We were talking about like where we wanted to go with the show and stuff, and you were like, ah, I just don't feel oh, any yeah. apologetics. Yeah. And then in the interview, you were like, you know what? Some apologetics might be. Yeah. Well, no, but this is this is the whole thing, right? Because as as he's doing this, he's he's talking about certain things that are apologetic. Yeah. In the sense of this is what the church believes. This is why, and kind of answering some common objections. But at the same time, it's not with the with the attitude of like, here's the objections that you see right. most often. Let me tell you why they're all wrong. Right. And trying to fix everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's much it's much simpler, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I really appreciate this this whole approach. But he's also like, it's just and, and I said it in the interview. It's just an invitation into something. Yeah. Like come and check out the deeper part of the gospel that you might not even be aware is there. But let's just take a peek behind the veil. Yeah, and, and I think to an extent that's what apologetics should be. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe not totally, but. Yeah, I think maybe it's I'm going with my own bad habits from apologetics, mm. which tended towards like a lot of self-righteousness and pride. Yeah, I, uh, I which is much that. more of a moral problem on my part than it is on the part of like apologetics. It's not a problem with apologetics itself. It's a, it's a right, problem with right, me. Right. Right. As G.K. Chesterton said, in answer to the question, "What's wrong with the world?" It's me. Right. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> supposedly, really? supposedly uh, the the, the story goes: if you ask what's wrong with the world, I am. I am. <laughs> yeah. Like the problem is me, and it's my sinfulness, right? So anyway, right. but there, I think Gary really does a great job in this book of just kind of breaking open some some elements of, of the Bible and, and particularly of the Gospels that we might not be aware of otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I highly recommend it. the Gospel Truth: How We Can Know What Christ Taught by Gary Machuda, published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Check it out. 
Well, Gary, welcome to The Tangent. It's great to have you with us. Uh, thanks so much for making time to, to join us today. Uh, well, hey, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So we're meeting you because you've got a new book out, The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. This is uh, through Emmaus Road Publishing. And um, well, I'm, I'm about halfway through. I got to be honest, I haven't finished the book yet. But what I'm reading so far is really, this is a fun read. It's, it's really pretty fascinating. Um, the greatest of all questions about a book, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. What motivates you? Well, with me, uh, you know, usually I... Uh, you know, I've been dealing with explaining the faith since the early 1990s, and so I'm also a research nerd. So I'm always accumulating all this information until eventually I start forgetting it. It's, uh, I think, wow, I got put into a book because I'm going to forget all of it. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, we're really living in a post-Christian world where people uh, not only doubt the gospel, but they don't even know who Jesus is, you know? And uh, there are some really, really great books out there that give the defense of reliability of the Gospels and so on. But uh, a lot of them are evangelical. And I, mm. because of that, there's a blind spot when it comes to the church. And the church is really um, one of those pillars that can give you a really robust case why you should believe in the Gospels, whether they're trustworthy Otherwise, you know, if, if you're just trying to vindicate the text of the gospel, then it could be, well, maybe it's a fabrication or hoax or legend or something like that. And so um, what I wanted to do was to defend the gospels, but also kind of take it to the next level. And as you probably noticed in the book, I keep taking it to the next level and next level and next level. And uh, yeah, so I, I felt like there was a real need to fill in that gap in uh, uh, defending the faith. Definitely. Now, uh, I must admit the reason that, that your book kind of piqued my interest is because I am, well, I used to be a high school teacher. Now I'm, I'm working here at Veritas. Um, and I had a student who would constantly question, which, which I would encourage him in uh, because... You know, seeking understanding with these things is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you that were works. shaking your head no. <laughs> no, don't, don't ever no. let them ask questions. Never let them never ask let questions. Them ask. That's how you derail the conversation. You never get anything done in the classroom. No, ask um, questions. That's good. That's good. And and oftentimes I was able to give him an answer that he found satisfactory. At least I hope so, you know. Um, but something that I never, that I didn't actually, I think, satisfy him on was how can I know the gospel's are telling what Jesus said, like, like, and, and I actually hit him with, you know, the essence is there might, maybe it's not word for word, but the essence is there. And I don't know if that was satisfactory to him. Uh, but regardless, that was, that was why I was so interested in this book. Uh, and I guess the question that I have for you is if there was a, a millennial looking for an answer to the veracity of the gospels, right? Is there a particular point that you would try and make to them? Oh, yeah. Um, first, I would start by saying uh, that Jesus taps into a mechanism called the, the uh, rabbi-disciple circle that was already in existence within uh, Judaism of the day. In other words, mm -hmm. there was a mechanism by which you could pass on large amounts of detailed information from generation to generation with accuracy. 
And if you look at the Gospels, and this is, kind of, uh, this is how I sort of started out the book, is if you look at the Gospels, what you see is Jesus taps into that. And so it's not merely just somebody saying, oh, I remember way back when, when Jesus was around, well, you said they did something like this. These people... A general memory. Exactly. No, these people <laughs> yeah, were being yeah. trained, you know, because right. the disciples weren't just... And it wasn't just rote memorization either. They were being trained to almost like lawyers, right? Not only do you have to know the law with precision, but you have to know how to apply the law in different cases. So... The instructor, for example, the, the rabbi would ask disciples legal questions. Disciples would ask the rabbi questions. That's exactly what you find throughout the gospel, you know. So, right. so the, what we have are the earliest accounts of the disciples who were trained in this information, and that would probably be the first thing to notice. But there's also, I would also point out, there's layers of formatting that occur in the gospels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems as if this material has been put into a structure to facilitate memorization. And, uh, and then you have the witness of the early church, which to me is uh, the knockdown argument, because mm-hmm. that really, I, I, I don't see how you can argue against that, really. Hmm. Can, you, can you jump a little deeper into the witness of the early church? Yeah, right. Um, well, I use this analogy, right? And we all go through this. If you go to the bank to cash a 10 or $15 check, right? You can go through the drive-through, no problem. They might not even check your account. They'll just give you the cash. But if you have a check for a million dollars, right? You got to get in. You can't do that in the drive-through. In fact, you're not going to get your million dollars cash. They're going to put a hold on it. They're going to call the institution. You won't see a dime of it until they know the funds are in there, right? right? Why? Well, because of risk, right? It's risk management. The bank can take a $15, $20 hit, no problem, but it can't take a million-dollar hit. It's got to minimize its risk. So the next question is, the earliest people, the Jews or Gentiles that are uh, presented with the gospel, did they have a risk? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because to be a Christian means you're going to forsake your family customs, you're going to follow this guy who claims to be the son of God and Messiah, who just so happened to be executed by the Romans as an insurrectionist, right? <laughs> so you're going to be following this guy accused of being an insurrectionist, which won't put, won't put you in favor with the Romans. Uh, there's just a, a whole lot of risk involved, right? So just like a bank would check out a million-dollar check, I mean, this is a really big check to cash. So they would check it out. Because the risk of it being false would mean not only that you could be punished physically, maybe even killed, but you could be following a false messiah who's misleading Israel and end up in hell, right? So there's, it's a huge, huge risky thing. And so in my book, I show that, yeah, there is a huge risk that people did check it out and they affirmed what was written there. Right. Yeah. And Matt, I have bad news for you. <laughs> okay. okay. The bad news for you is that your students that you had were not millennials. <laughs> Significantly younger Gen than millennials. Z? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know the, yeah, I no, don't know no, the, like the time frame. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, and that actually, that's, that's a whole thing. Cause like dealing with a Gen Z question compared to a millennial question, it's a very different way of approaching right. the question. Right. But it's good. I like it. Yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> when we're looking at the, the gospels and we're seeing these stories that are told, um, I think a lot of times we, we pick up our English language Bible and, or whatever our modern language is, we read it and we say, okay, this is the story. And then our, our modern cultural references start to come in. So we start to hear certain words or certain phrases and we have a little bit of a rebellion <laughs> against certain things. We don't, we're not comfortable with how certain things are phrased. We start to get into the idea that, oh, this is just, uh, it's just old fashioned. And so it's, it's mm. out of date or something. But what you're doing in this is, is you're actually saying it's instead of deciding based on our current language, our modern language, deciding what the gospel is telling us, why don't we understand something about the language itself that the gospel was first spoken in, the gospel was first written in. Um, and something that I had forgotten, I thought that was really interesting. Of course, the gospels uh, come to us in Greek, but that there's this earlier form that we might not actually have access to that could have been written down in Aramaic or Hebrew. Can you speak a little bit about what what that means and the importance of having that that understanding both of the the earlier language and the earlier culture that will inform our modern understanding yeah yeah it's uh yeah as i mentioned earlier you know nowadays most people don't even know who jesus is or or what's the big deal about him so why even look into him so through my book i was trying to get a sense of intrigue it's like there's something strange about this first century rabbi right and you pointed out something else that's really strange. Like the earliest copies we have of the Gospels are in Greek, but to the Greek reader, it doesn't always speak Greek, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. Why, why write a Gospel in, uh, in Greek and yet say things that Greek readers really wouldn't understand? And it's peppered with uh, what it shows is that there is an underlying layer, at least in portions of the Gospels, of an earlier Greek or Aramaic stratum, right? So the Gospels are very early compared to ancient literature, but the fact that they're relying on even earlier sources puts them even closer to the time of Christ, which kind of boosts up the probability of their accuracy. And uh, what's cool is, um, in my book, what I do is I point out that we could see that there is this memory formatting even within that substratum, right? It's because there's some portions where we're kind of sure what it says in in the original sources. Uh, one of my favorites, boy, I'm going to get this wrong. I, I wish I had my page up. I'll I'll, I'll wing it for you guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> is uh, the Benedictus? That's one of my favorites in Luke. And there's a couple of lines in the Benedictus that's really interesting, and that is uh, to. It says, to show mercy to our forefathers, I'm doing this from memory, to, to remember his holy covenants and the oath in which he swore to Abraham. Okay. Um, now, what's interesting there is there are three words, right? And that is uh, to uh, remember, to swear an oath, and um, to have mercy. Okay. And... The word to show mercy in Hebrew is the same word, root word in Hebrew of the name John. The same root to remember, zakar, is the root for zakariah. And to swear an oath is shabbat, which is the same root as elishabah, Elizabeth. 
So right there in that those three lines, you have reference to John, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, right? So why is it there? Well, I believe that's memory formatting, right? So if right. you just remember the three things that you're talking about in this in the Benedictus, uh, John, Zechariah, uh, and Elizabeth, you have a memory device to reproduce those three lines in the Benedictus, like I almost did right here live. <laughs> yeah. That's chapter four in your book, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. And, uh, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think this is an important thing because w- when we realize that Jesus is a teacher, yeah. right, as, as a rabbi, he's, he's using teaching techniques and he's using those that are, are most appropriate for the people that he's speaking to. Uh, that's why the, the parables are also so important because in, in the parables, he's using imagery that they know and understand. Um, and so we might not fully understand. I always remember the anytime the parable of the good shepherd would come around when I was in seminary, uh, all the guys from the Midwest who grew up on farms or ranches or something like that, they all understood what a shepherd does a lot better than those of us from the East Coast who had like once saw a sheep at a petting zoo. Um, <laughs> and you know, refused like, to go near it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, we're afraid of that thing, you know, and it's going to bite me. I don't know. Uh, but we don't we don't know anything about that. But some of these these images that Jesus uses, they're very, very relevant to the particular time and place. Well, the better we understand his culture and the the culture to which he was speaking, the better we're going to understand how those images, how those uh, how those those ideas and, and metaphors can apply and translate into our life. But if we just go with our our own English translation of the Bible, they might lose something of their of their meaning. You know, right. yeah, and that goes even down to even the locations Jesus gives his discourses. I, one of my favorites is in, in Matthew 16, where Jesus says to Simon, you are rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will, will not prevail against it. He does that in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And if you've been to Caesarea Philippi, even today, uh, the, one of the major features is there's a large outcropping of rocks. And on top of that is a pagan temple dedicated to Caesar as God. And underneath is uh, what was once the one of the springs that fed the Jordan. And the ancients took soundings of it, and they found it to be bottomless. So it would, like went down forever. And so Jesus says these words to Peter, that upon this rock I'm going to build my church, in sight of this outcropping of rock that has pagan shrines carved in it with this pagan temple to a false god, right? And he says the gates of Hades won't prevail against it, just like... The waters, the depths prevailed against this false uh, temple built upon this rock. Uh, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church, my temple. And, you know, why did Jesus do that? Well, because in the first century, anyone who knew that terrain, they could recall what Jesus says to Peter. And so it would be even more enforcement, reinforcement of what he said. And uh, and now he does that, but Jesus maps on the Jewish feast, like the Feast of Tabernacles. There is a water ceremony where the, the priests pour water and wine, and that's when he he cries out, "Everyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink," you know. So he even chooses right. the 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 times and the places where he gives the discourses, and that kind of amplifies it as well. How can you encourage somebody to to come to that understanding that there's there's more than just the text that we get when we, yeah, we open up our modern language Bible, and we've got some understanding that the story is rich, yeah. 
It's, it's, it's rich enough in English, right? There's, there's right. so much there. Uh, but then to, to help them to take that, that deeper step here, I mean, what, what you're really getting into is that there's a lot more than just the words on the page that we have. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot that's behind it all. Yeah. How do you help somebody step into that? Well, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's just poking, you know, prodding their curiosity. Like, isn't it strange that this is here? And, and you know, in order to tap into it, you have Bible notes, there's commentaries, things like that. But ultimately, you know, God doesn't call us all to be Bible scholars. You know, this is all very helpful, but ultimately, <laughs> the message in which he says can be known today. In fact, uh, in fact, guys, um, one of the things I noticed on social media while I was writing this book was atheists would say, okay, let's concede some stuff. Even if we believe our copies of the New Testament are identical to the original, even if we believe that what they recorded was truthful, none of that really matters because who can tell us what it really means, right? Um, and, and that's a really good objection. In fact, uh, there was a book written in the 1560s by a man named Rasberger, and the title of the book is 200 Interpretations of This Is My Body. So imagine that, 200 different interpretations of 1560 of those four words, right? This is my body. Right. So the atheist has a really good point. Even if you vindicate the text, how do you know what the text means, right? And so that's where in my book I go through some thought experiments. It's very commonsensical, right? And uh, I, I say, you know, uh, I'm going to show my age. You guys probably don't uh, remember this, but Peabody and Sherman, you know, the fractured fairy tale thing. I don't know if you, but anyway, there was a way back machine. You know no, I, I feel I, okay, bad. Yeah, I, I figured, <laughs> yeah, I'm an old timer. So it's, it's a great cartoon, by the way, if you ever get to see it. You know, okay. um, but anyway, they'd have a way back machine. So they'd go into periods of history and interact with historical figures. So in my book, I say, let's go in our Wayback Machine, and let's, let's just go to the first century, right? And let's pretend we go to the church where uh, the Apostle John is preaching, okay? And we sit there, and we have a copy of the Gospel of John, and he's, and he's preaching from John 6, this, you know, where Christ says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, you read your Bible, and you say, eh, I think that could be symbolic. I don't think he really meant like literal flesh like in the Eucharist. Okay, so how could you determine which is the correct interpretation, right? Well, after the service, you go up to John and you say, John, you know, you preached on this. Why should I believe your interpretation of me? And John would say the obvious, right? Well, first, I wrote the gospel, so I should know what I wrote. <laughs> right? Second, I'm, I received the gift of the Holy Spirit along with the other apostles, right, when Jesus sends the paraclete. And third, I was there. Right, I was a disciple. I, I was boots on the ground, and maybe even Jesus talked about with us that wasn't recorded in the gospel. So there's some really good reasons. Now let's say we're uber skeptics, right? We don't even buy that. How else could we verify the true meaning? Well, you could check with the congregation, or you could go to other churches where the apostles are, and ask them. You know, when Jesus said, "You must eat my flesh and drink my blood," was he talking about the Eucharist or not? And what you should find is that you would have multiple points of attestation that all coalesce to a single meaning. It doesn't have to be absolutely perfect, but it all points in the right direction, one way or another. 
And that's how you could verify it in the first century. And in my book, what I do is say, okay, let's go in a wayback machine and go back a generation and then a generation more. Can you still verify that meaning mm. of the text? And what I show ultimately is actually the further you go back, the easier it is to pick out when fabrications or mistakes are made, uh, it, which is, seems counterintuitive. You would think the further you go back, the less accurate it becomes. It actually becomes more accurate because you have a lot more data to work with. Yeah. I, I like how you're, I don't know. I, I guess as I was, as I was reading this book, I was, I was kind of curious as to what the, like, what was the, what was the outlook? Was, was this, a, is this a book of apologetics? Is this a book like in defense of, and as I was reading it, it just hit me that what you're doing, Gary, is, is you're, you're teaching fundamental theology. Like the, the credibility of revelation, the credibility of the gospel of the texts that we have um, in a way that says, come and explore this more. So it's, it's also very invitational. Um, and I, I guess I was thinking about that because uh, I've in in the last couple of days and, and weeks, like just before I got I got my copy of this, um, had like run into some some apologetics type questions. And everyone's like, I got really into apologetics when I was in high school. I think we talked about this, Matt. I think right? every Catholic boy does. Yeah, well, because we, <laughs> we want to argue, right? We want to win arguments and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I gotten really into apologetics, and I was kind of a jerk about it. I'm not I think lie. every Catholic boy does that, yeah. too. <laughs> I don't think I handled myself super well with that. Um, and so I, I've kind of like pulled back a little bit from the idea of apologetics, but I think sometimes I make too stark of a distinction between apologetics and evangelization. And what I was finding as I was reading this, this book, Gary, is that you're, you're opening up a door that says, come on in while also laying out the case. Like you're making the case very clearly for the apologetic type answer, but you're also, it's, it's throwing open a door that says, this is, this is where you should be come on in so it's it's evangelical also yeah do you find that there's often a, a like too stark distinction between apologetics and evangelization or that the attitude when we evangelize sometimes gets too apologetic or w whatever mm -hmm. it might be yeah how would you make the distinction yeah that's a great uh great question and by the way uh you're not the first father to read one of my books and wonder what in the world is this going to <laughs> but uh so i was glad that you're able to figure it out uh yeah yeah you know there's three things that we need catechesis uh of apologetics and evangelism catechesis explains what we believe apologetics explains why we believe and evangelism explains in whom we believe right we come to person mm. person to person with christ and so all three of those are necessary unfortunately what i find is usually pieces of the puzzle are missing uh it used to be the case where Catholics were really well catechized. They knew a little bit of apologetics, but they weren't evangelized. Yeah. And then there was the reaction where, wow, we need to evangelize. So the, uh, the emphasis is on evangelism, but you know, catechetics has kind of fallen to the side. And, and catech or excuse me, uh, apologetics fell to the side. Catechesis actually is becoming better. But it's like, I think we got to hit all three points. You know, I think if one, it's like a three-legged stool. If you're missing one of those legs, the, the stool just doesn't stand. And, uh, you know, if you're missing any one, it becomes hollow, right? Um, if you can present a really great case for the faith and you know what it is, but you never actually have a devotion to Christ as a child, 
um, yeah. you know, you become kind of a Mr. Know-it-all, right? <laughs> or, right. you know, if you don't have and Christianity can become a philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and if you don't have apologetics, but you're evangelized and you know what the faith is, you don't have any roots, so it's really easy for people to push you away from the church. And again, if you don't know the contents, uh, then it becomes nebulous, right? You're just following the Jesus of your own imagination. So mm -hmm. they all have to go together. What do you think is the proper order? Like, does, is someone evangelized first and then catechized and then taught apologetics? Are they catechized and then taught apologetics and then evangelized? Realizing that probably the correct answer is, well, you try and do all three at the same time. Um, <laughs> but... That's only if you let people ask questions. But like there's, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> which I don't know. Um, but but like apologetics is only going to go so so far with a seventh grader, you know. Although maybe I'm not giving children enough credit. After all, I don't let them ask questions. <laughs> well, you know, I found seventh eighth grade is the best time to do apologetics because that's when they're in their rebellion stage, right? And right, so yeah. it's so you it's but the thing is you have to change it though you can't be giving the instruction you got to be challenging them right so you right. got in fact what I do sometimes for youth when I'm invited to speak to youth I'll just go up there and say hi my name's Gary I'm an atheist and this is why God doesn't exist and I just start hammering up with stuff right or I'm a fundamentalist and this is why the Catholic Church is sending you to hell and I'll just start throwing objections. And what's really cool is in these retreats, the kids that were uh, not participating, kind of sitting in the back, not really paying attention, those are the ones that suddenly start coming up and interacting. Uh, so right. it, I, I find that's a really good sweet spot for uh, apologetics. Right. Plus, you know, they're usually yeah, confirmed it, around then, so that they have the Holy Spirit set yeah. for it. And, yeah. Yeah. In my experience, that's true as well. Okay. I've definitely had kids in uh, confirmation prep in seventh grade CCD be like, you're dumb, the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's back up here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, when a seventh grader tells you, well, science disproves everything in the Bible, and then you've got to explain to them that they don't know enough science to, to say anything <laughs> like that, it's it's kind of hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but you can't but use that approach yeah. for grade, grade school kids or they'll just cry, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I see, I, I've experienced a bit of a, an uptick in evangelization in the church because my wife and I do some praise and worship music, you know, throughout our diocese. And I, it's it kind of just clicked for me. Not that I didn't know it in, in full prior, but it, I must not have because it really has clicked to me that that's what, that's what praise and worship is. It's sharing in whom you believe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a teaching moment. It's just like a moment of invitation um, where you say, like, that's why that's why you hear, but we approach praise and worship music kind of like Alexio Divina, where we try and repeat things. Mm -hmm. And that's why you hear things like, you're a good father over and over and over. But it's because you're really trying to like yeah. pound that home. You know, like you want, you want your, I don't know, individual in the pew. I don't know. I can't think of the phrase. Right. But you want them to know person. who Jesus is. The word you're looking for is person. <laughs> the person. <laughs> I have a three month old and I'm going to use him as an excuse for being tired. <laughs> no, you're right though. I think it's, it's that, that sense of we, we want to draw people in 
evangelization can do that so beautifully that it's just the invitation come come and have a look i mean that's what right. jesus does with with the apostles when, when he first meets them right yeah. rabbi where are you staying he says come and see right yeah. and so they have this invitation to come and and just check it out and that's before he starts teaching them anything that's before he tries to instruct them or, right. or defend uh himself against the objections of the scribes and the pharisees he just says come and see let's let's get to know this a little bit better um yeah, I, I have found more and more if I'm, I've been approached a few times by people who are not Catholic and are kind of coming with, with pretty typical objections to the Catholic faith. But more and more, the, the attitude that I find them coming with, once upon a time, I thought, this is great. Let's get into the argument. Let's, let's have this conversation. But more and more, I just see like, you're, you're just unsatisfied. I, I, I really feel this, this sense in which they are, they're searching for something, um, but they're searching for it maybe on their, in their own intellectual track and there's something missing of the encounter. So I want to invite them into the encounter so that the intellect can kind of catch up. Yeah. Right. The encounter with Jesus then allows you to, to take that next step. Um, yeah, that's, but I've, I, I can, so what I'm thinking about is the amount of times that I've had, I went to school in Nashville, Tennessee, so I was surrounded by mostly Protestants. Um, and quite frankly, was a terrible apologist in college because I wasn't evangelized. Um, but once I came to really know Christ myself, these friends that I had made in college, I have stayed in contact with. And the amount of times that you en I've ended up having conversations of like, here's why the church teaches what, she teaches about Mary, you know, like that's the typical. Um, and, and frankly, I at, at first was just always really frustrated because I thought I was making like solid arguments. You know what I mean? Like you can point to Revelation 12 and be like, boom, Mary, mother of all Christians. It's there, you know, mm -hmm. but it's kind of the evangelization, you know, in an extension towards Mary and devotion of like, I can show you that, but you could just be like, well, maybe she's an absentee mother. Do you know what I mean? Like you could yeah, take yeah. that position. Yeah, you actually, uh, I found the same thing true in my ministry, uh, where you can you can actually get non-Catholics to believe in the, the Immaculate Conception, but it becomes a factoid to them. You know, it's just one of those interesting right. facts in the Bible, and you know, they just go on their merry way. And the, the, what we what's needed is you need to integrate that with the whole faith, right? You need to have these things, invite them to, to think deeper, right? Uh, not only about Mary, but especially Jesus, who is one of the most fascinating, uh, exciting, uh, tantalizing, inexplicable, you know, revelations of God. I mean, it should, if you can convey that, there's, Jesus is so amazing, you know? But also integrate along with the faith. Why is Mary important? Why is the Immaculate Conception important? How does that fit within God's perfect plan of redemption? And how does that show, you know, actually this is the Father's love that he cared about us so much that he was willing to erase, you know, the, the uh, shamefulness of Eve's fall by creating an Immaculate Mother that would say yes to redemption, where Eve said no and brought about the fall. You know, so unless, so I think, you know, answering objections is fine. But if you want to be a super apologist, like an evangelist and an apologist, you need to integrate it with the whole so they can see the big picture 
And that, I think, invites them to learn even more because it's so attractive, it's so beautiful. Yeah. I saw a thing on the History Channel not too long ago, which, you know how History Channel shows go. It's like the aliens built the pyramids and stuff. Um, but this this historian basically goes and he does these little man-on-the-street interviews, and he takes a historical figure that you might know a certain amount about, but like you probably stopped learning about that historical event when you were in sixth grade or something. And he says, what if I told you that this historical figure was actually like this or actually did this? And it's like it's the stuff that you don't get in grammar school history because it's probably not appropriate to teach a, a fifth grader this kind of material, you know, <laughs> like or there's there's a nuance to what they what they were doing. And whoever he's talking to on the street is like, no way. I never I never knew that. But then it makes no difference at all after that. Like this, this new information about this person, it's more like he's elevating them from a child's understanding of history to a slightly more adult level of, of understanding history. But it's not really doing it. It's, it's kind of fun to say, oh, yeah, I didn't really understand the fullness of that story about historical figure A, B or C. But coming back to your book now. When you take us into the Hebrew or into the Aramaic, um, when when you get us into some of this other stuff about the the culture and what the what the rabbi disciple relationship would have looked like in first century Palestine, it's not just a well. What if I told you that Jesus actually wanted this to happen? <laughs> it's you're actually taking us into something that. that fills out the story that we've mm -hmm. been told without changing our understanding of the of the story in the sense of it doesn't have a different meaning now it's like the story still means the same thing the episode of of what happened in the gospel still holds the same value yeah. the teaching is unchanged but now i understand it at a deeper level and w with a fuller context yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, okay one of the greatest religious movies ever made is the three amigos <laughs> and so I, oh, tell, I always please tell me more about this. Okay, yeah. If uh, if you haven't seen it, you need to. Actually, it has a I think uh, some really strong Christological, Mariological streams to it. Even though it's a secular movie, so there's a, the three a amigos. Steve okay. Martin. I've never Martin seen Short. this movie. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. So it's basically a three. I'll, I'll give you the. I'll try not to spoil it for you. Okay. It, you you can. I'm going to watch it tonight. Okay. Yeah, there's a couple, <laughs> some material that's inappropriate for kids, but by and large, it's a good movie. Um, but there's a – see, these are three actors who play wealthy Spanish landlords in the movies in the 1900s or early, you know, teens, silent movies. And these this uh, group is being persecuted for real in Mexico. And they misunderstand the telegram to be an invitation to put on a show. So they go down there dressed like the Spanish landlords, you know, doing their acts. And during the part, like, one of them gets glazed by a, a gunshot by the, the foe. And he goes back to the other two. By the way, they're incredibly stupid, too. <laughs> he goes <laughs> back to the rest people. of the group, the other amigos, and he says, this is for real. <laughs> this is, and, and they're like, huh? And he's like, yeah, this actually happened, right? And, and right. they start crying in front of the town, and it's really funny. you got to see the movie. Anyway, there's something true about that with the gospel. You know, unfortunately, we tend to package the gospel in easy bite-sized pieces, and it becomes broad. And people, they, they would get the information, they understand it. But there has to come a point where you say, this actually happened. This is real, you know. Mm. And I think, Father, that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like, 
when you look at the Gospels, this isn't like ordinary manuscripts. These things, this actually happened. There are these sources that are incredibly close. Then we can see Jesus' fingerprints all over it, right? Because he's the one that did this formatting, right? Which is mind-blowing if you think about it. Because Jesus' teachings are so deep, and yet he teaches it using a format, you know, like a rhyme or something, in order to be remembered, you know? So that's just mind-blowing to me. Um, and I think that's what it is. It's like when you start digging into the stuff and looking in explanations, hopefully there comes a time where you say, this actually happened. This is real. Mm-hmm. And if it actually happened, this is life-changing. And not only is it life-changing, but the whole world needs to change. And that realization that comes from that first century had radically revolutionized the West. It brought about Western civilization. Unfortunately, today, you know, we're forgetting that. And so I, I think that's really important. Yeah. I've never definitely not thought of three amigos in religious terms. Uh, I now I now really need to go back and, and watch this. See, I always think of field of dreams in religious terms. Ah, yes. Um, you know, yeah. like I actually got to go to the field of dreams last year and and stood on the field and like I had a quasi religious experience. There, I think. <laughs> yeah. It was like it was there was something very powerful about it. Um, but there's there's yeah, it's it's beautiful actually when we can see elements of popular culture yeah. in in light of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when we can see that these things are, are connected. And actually, that's very much what Jesus does himself in in the Gospels. We see him using the cultural references and the, the things that they know and understand. Right. Um, he talks about the, um, the, the people who were killed when the tower fell on them. Uh, he makes the reference to uh, the Galileans who uh, Pilate had mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifice and so invalidated the sacrifice. I mean, he's, he's referring to things that the people knew about, things that had happened right there. He's using turns of phrase that would have been familiar to them. He's using uh, images that would have been familiar to them. Some of his parables are old rabbinic parables that he's just giving a new twist to. So he's, he's drawing on all of these things to point the way to the truth of God, even though the things that he's talking about aren't necessarily God in himself, right? right. Um, and that, that engagement with the culture, I think, is, is really important. Um, h- how do you think then that we as, as ministers of the gospel, we as, as Christians who have been entrusted with the, the truth of the gospel, can best engage with the culture that we're in? Yeah. Um, well, today, like I said, I think we really have to introduce them to the strangeness of Jesus and make it intriguing. Um, that's how modern culture gets viewers, right? You mentioned the History Channel. How many times, you know, uh, history's mysteries or alien abductions or something. It's because you're yeah. intrigued, right? Now, that's a lot of it's fabrication and fiction. But like I said, you know, when you know Jesus, you've realized that Jesus is so fascinating. And the more you learn about it, uh, the more fascinating it becomes. I, I think that's really where we need to start. We need to... Uh, Introduce people to Jesus himself. Most people, if they ever heard the name Jesus, it was a swear word. You know, they have no context <laughs> whatsoever. And um, right. so I think that's one way. It's We should always be planting little seeds to say, you know, isn't it interesting how, you know, such, you find something such and such. Why do you think they did all these memory devices in the in the scriptures? Why do you think? Jesus says, you know, these harsh things. And, and 
maybe not give answers, but I think giving questions, piquing their interest is a great tool to use as well. Hmm. Yeah, I I think a, a supporting point for that too is if you look at like the demythologization of the gospels, it just makes Jesus ordinary. Yeah. You know, like that's at the core of that movement is to turn Jesus into a regular person. See, mm. I remembered the word person this time. There we go. <laughs> um, but, but a second supporting point to that would be when I speak to, you know, high school students, uh, I remember last year when I was teaching them about charisms, they were, they were blown away by the idea of charisms. Uh, and in peace, I think some of them were like, hold on. I am going to get a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, you probably won't fly. I know I see you've got a Padre Pio in the back of your your office there. Um, but but even someone like St. Padre Pio, right? Like yeah. what a motive of credibility. Yeah. You know, that that Padre Pio had the stigmata and that he could read souls and how intriguing that is. I don't know how you hear the story about Padre Pio levitating in the air, stopping an airstrike, and then you turn around and go, that's uninteresting. (laughs) (laughs) I can't I can't imagine that. Yeah. Um, So I think even extending beyond that into the communion of saints. Right. And so Jesus is intriguing. But now Jesus acting in his body, which is the church, is intriguing. And that's why you should come to mass and experience it from the inside you know like at least that's the invitation right yeah yeah i'm with you cool yeah so you got all that i know there was no question there sorry no no (laughs) you got all that you got those revolutions of thought uh michael aquilina has several books on how christ has revolutionized society civilization and you know in my book i point this out that if the cause is always greater than the effects and you see Christianity that just goes global in spite of persecutions, in spite of the most brilliant minds acting against them, in spite of giving a gospel that is so counter-social, right? And yet it takes over the world and lifts it up to unseen heights, right? What was the cause of that? If that is the effect, the cause has to be even greater. And, and then what is the cause? It's this Jesus of Nazareth out in the outskirts of, you know, the Roman Empire, unleashes this. So what is it that unleashed it? And, you know, uh, uh, one thing you mentioned earlier in the program is it's not all arguments, right? The Holy Spirit works. You need the Holy Spirit for conversion. Uh, You know, we're in sales. It's the Holy Spirit that's in management. He's the one that converts people. (laughs) But I really believe that. I I like that phrase. I'm going to use that. I've stole it from other people, too, so I can't claim it as my own. (laughs) But I think the, if we can get people to be open and say, why is that? Why is it curiosity? You know, wh- why, why did, what unleashed this thing? Mm. I think that opens up room for the Holy Spirit to work in their life and give the answer, right? Or at least put a pebble in their shoe so that eventually they'll, they'll work their way to the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Curtis Martin has... Uh, in his in his book, it's very short, just about discipleship, uh, and he talks about the the method modeled by the master. So the idea of inviting somebody into discipleship, into friendship, sharing the faith with them, helping them to grow in the faith, and then they in turn bring somebody else into discipleship. And and so we're seeing the rabbi disciple relationship right there. Yeah. So if, if we go with with his title, the method modeled by the master, um, and then we look at how we teach the faith today the method modeled by the master. 
it would seem like our catechesis doesn't necessarily follow the method modeled by the master. Um, and if we get into, we could get into all kinds of discussions about pedagogy and everything. And actually, we want to have a show about that with with a Catholic educator. <laughs> but we, we look at like, all right, once upon a time, the Baltimore Catechism uh, was, I think it still is in many ways, the gold standard for catechesis because it so plainly says, this is what we believe. But a lot of times the rote memorization of the catechism neglected the idea of real evangelization, real encounter with Christ, with the living God. Um, and it neglected anything further than the rote memorization. So I, I memorized my point. I don't have any argument to back it up. I don't have anything that stands behind it. What we see with Jesus and the rabbi-disciple relationship is that he teaches, and he teaches in ways that they're going to be able to memorize. He teaches using, um, whether it's it's almost poetry or a particular structure, you know, like you talk about in, in the book, that there's structure to some of the lessons that he teaches, even wordplay, so certain words reference the other word. Um, I mean, Arius picked this up and teaching songs, yep. right? So the Arian heresy spread because he was he was teaching people popular melodies and uh, using rhymes to to help them learn his heresy, which is, you know, we've also figured that out too in in good ways yeah. teaching the faith through through song. But how do we balance out then some of that that memorization and encounter? How do we how do we follow the method that Jesus models in teaching? In our own approach to catechesis today, yeah, well, it's it, it requires some effort on our part, right? Because we we need to enculturate it in the sense of using examples from culture, uh, and culture is always changing. And unfortunately, culture is getting worse and worse, so it's it's harder and harder to get good examples. Um, but still, you know, you could you could use some of the same methods, right? Um, you could use rote memorization. And culturization, uh, but you also have to work in evangelism, and part of that is we need good, holy, faithful catechists and uh, teachers, right? Uh, now, let's face it: also, how many, how much do you remember of something that you learned before eighth grade? No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you do remember the teachers, though, right? You remember right. the bad right. ones, but you also remember the good ones. And it's like, in some ways, it's just, sometimes, I mean, in a way, you have to trust the Holy Spirit, especially with the younger group, that mm -hmm. that the Holy Spirit's going to be able to work through you to get them the information they need at that particular point. Because ultimately, they're going to forget 99.9% .9 of the content. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they can remember right. things like that particular teacher I really loved because they loved me. Or that particular teacher, I don't even remember what the question was, but I remember he had great answers or she had great answers. So there mm -hmm. are answers out there, right? And if you can walk away with that at a young age, that's pretty significant, right? Uh, for older age kids, um, I, like I, I, they're, they're going to be bombarded in this culture uh, by anti-Catholicism and... Um, so I, I think when you get into teen and young adults, I, I like the confrontative approach, right? Force them to think, mm -hmm. throw out the objections that other people are going to throw out, and then help them work through an answer, right? Uh, for young adults, that's something the church doesn't do. Uh, can you imagine sending a kid 
out into the, the real world with an eighth grade education expecting them to do well in business. Like that would be absurd, right? But when it comes to catechetics and stuff, it's like our catechesis ends eighth grade or 12th grade level. And so we really need to pick up the ball with catechesis for young adults and older adults because it's like a lifetime journey. Hmm. Is that something as a pastor you would this is your final answer, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not allowed to evolve my answer no, over time. No idea. I, I yeah, more yeah, that's it. This okay, is great. it right now. Yeah, um, let's go. Would you be interested or willing as a pastor to have further catechesis into, I know this is actually something you would be interested in, that you would want further catechesis <laughs> at past, past confirmation. Yeah. Um, but including that apologetics aspect, knowing yeah. that like, the Gary Machuda. He just said it, right? The, the, the individuals going out into, into the world today are going to be faced with just like a heavy dose of objections. Yeah. Well, so actually, Gary, this is something that we can, we can throw your way too. I'm a big fan of, of confirming earlier. I, I believe that if confirmation does what, what we believe that it does, which is it, it empowers us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we shouldn't wait for those gifts to be given until we've gotten to a certain age, like chronologically that, oh, I've now gone to catechesis for this long, so now I'm ready to get the Holy Spirit. It should be the other way around. Receive the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to be part of the formation of the intellect and, and the will. Mm-hmm. So as, as we start to learn, we're, we're learning with the Holy Spirit already um, empowering well, already should, is, isn't the right word because if you've been baptized, the Holy Spirit's already there. But you know what I mean, yeah. right? That, so I'm a big fan of what can we do to to emphasize catechesis and formation post sacramental experience, right? So after after somebody has received the sacraments, how can we best do that? And I think we've so tied getting confirmed to catechism and to, to catechesis that we we kind of miss the point that catechesis is the ongoing and lifelong process of, of learning and maturing in our understanding. You know, I've, I, I have known certain things about the world since I was a little kid, but I understand them in a very different way now as an adult. Um, and the same thing is true about my faith. There are things that I, I understood very much as a child, but I understand them in a very different way now that I'm an adult, now that I'm a priest. So what, what do you think? I mean, are we are we too tied to the sacramental timeline of we've got to get the kids confirmed so we keep them in catechesis that long and then they're done and there's nothing for them after that? How, how do we how do we work on overcoming that? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm I keep going back and forth about the age of confirmation. Uh, I mean, back in the day, it was expected kids would get, have one through eight Catholic education, then Catholic high school. And then, then they'd start getting into secular groups. So uh, the idea is, I mean, confirmation really is a, an empowerment to defend the faith. I mean, Vatican Council on um, doc, uh, Dogmatic Constitution on the Church says so. Uh, but, you know, kids are being hammered now in grade school. So uh, that's a yeah. great reason to bump it up earlier. And again, like, like we mentioned, it, it, in the parishioner's mind, it's like that's the last sacrament that we have to participate, you know, specifically send them to. So it's like that's the goal. Once you get confirmed, then it's like, okay, now we just go to ordinary time in our life and just go to Mass every Sunday or so. And, you know, uh, so yeah, we have to overcome that. As, as far as uh, adults, I think we have to think outside the box for educating adults. 
um, we in our parish we did an adult catechism that I ran, and uh, basically it was uh, we had bar food, you know, like nachos and stuff like that, pizza mm-hmm. for adults. We even had adult beverages. Uh, I went through a section of the Baltimore Catechism, except I bumped it up, so we went even more in depth, right? So, mm. and then we had a quiz, and the winner of the quiz gets a hundred bucks. And that brought in a lot of people. Now, I think okay. it's worth a hundred bucks. <laughs> Money. You know, it's worth a hundred bucks every month for a parish to have well catechized young, I mean, young adults come, right? Yeah. And it, it kind of worked. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I think we, we have to think things, you know, outside the box and something that would attract people to come in. And once they're there, they enjoyed it, whether or not they won, right? Because we went over the answers and stuff. And it was a lot of fun. I like that idea of like the the ongoing adult catechesis. Um, but to your point that once upon a time everybody had basically K through eight Catholic school at least, if not into a Catholic high school. Yeah. Um, I think we've seen in so many places just how how Catholic education has lost its its sense as a priority for for people in their lives. And like I'm a big believer in Catholic school, but I also live in a town where. Uh, the public school system academically is quite good. And a lot of people can't justify the cost of Catholic school yeah. um, if they want their kids to go to college. So they they hold off on sending their kids to Catholic school, maybe until college. And then a lot of our Catholic universities have stopped being institutions where the, the faith is going to be transmitted primarily mm-hmm. and have basically just become very good schools. But the Catholic identity part is sort of ancillary to the whole thing. Yeah. Can we save Catholic education? Uh, yes. That's way too big a question. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, it gives me an opportunity to plug the, the book I, I printed uh, right before this one. It's called Revolt Against Reality. Oh, great. Yeah, reality. please do. Yeah. Revolt Against, Say it again. Revolt Against Reality. And what I do is in that book, I trace the, the history of the insanity that we live in today. And part of that is the mm. collapse of Catholic education. And and I go into why it is those big brick and mortar institutions, Catholic institutions, end up just being secular institutions with daily mass, right? And and at the end of the book, the end of the book was pretty bleak. I have to say, I, it wasn't there wasn't a lot good. But but I think it, it's helpful though, at least understanding the craziness we're living in today. But so I added an extra chapter, which is reality strikes back. Uh, you know, my little homage to Star Wars. And uh, and this was several, about four or five years ago. I was looking for signs that, you know, you could dismiss reality, you could explain it away, but ultimately reality is the only game in town, right? And part of that is Catholic right. education. Yeah. What happened was, you know, when these big institutions failed in handing on the faith, what happened was Catholic parents went broke sending their kids to a Catholic college only to have them robbed of their faith. So they get really great paying jobs, but they're no longer Catholic. And so they start looking for other institutions. And what happened is there are smaller institutions out there that are faithful to the church that started getting a lot of students in. And these institutions have been growing. So there's kind of a rebirth, especially in upper education and Catholic education and like you know, like the University of Franciscan University of Steubenville, Christendom College. Right. I mean, you could go on and on. There's these small institutions that are just growing and growing. 
And and the reason they're growing is because parents now have confidence that at least their children is going to be it's going to reinforce their faith and they're going to get a great education. And it's a lot cheaper than the big name ones. It seems like there's a pretty pretty large increase in homeschooling. Yeah, well. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I think top to bottom or bottom to top, however you want to <laughs> you want to look, <laughs> there's homeschooling so people are are, are increasing that. You also have more um more Catholic schools now where, where families are getting, I think, much more involved in curriculum and in, in planning that. And I think they're really taking up what the Second Vatican Council said about the role of parents mm-hmm. in relationship to the education of their children. Yeah. They're really starting to step into that in a powerful way. And then, yeah, at the at the college level, um, you're seeing, I agree with you, schools like Steubenville, um, like uh, University of Dallas, Christendom, these places that are, are just really starting to do something unique Um and it shouldn't be that unique, but they're, they're right. doing the unique thing by offering an authentically Catholic approach to education. Yeah. And it's changing lives. And I think it's going to change the face of, of the church, at least in the United States. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's so much there. And if we can, I don't know, I, f- I feel like we just need to recover so much of, of things that have, not in, in a false nostalgia sort of a way, but like recover things that actually this works. Yeah. There's there's a way to hand on the faith and and Jesus taught us how how to do it. We can we can really make some good moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, Matt Frad talks a lot about um, recovering tradition. That this this generation really, I think it's my generation he's talking about. But my generation is a is a generation. I'm too old. You're saying my generation's <laughs> lost already. Thanks. Sorry. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> no, your generation has more than mine does. But it's that like this generation of people is is trying to live this thing that was never actually handed on to them. Yeah. And so it's like, we're in an awkward phase, you know? Uh, trying to learn how to be something that you were told, oh, you should probably be this, but nobody ever actually showed right, you what or, that looks I, like. And, and like the, the tangible example for me is that I care a lot. I care a lot about the mass and want to know more Latin than I do. But no one, like I did not hear a lick of Latin until I was like 23. Sure. You know what sure. I mean? And so there's this awkward phase. I, for context, I'm 26, <laughs> right? The, right. But there's this awkward phase where it's like, I'm doing my absolute best. Like I've got the Sanctus down, you know what I mean? But like, I don't have the mystery of faith in Latin down at mass yet. You know what right, I mean? And, right. I'm, and I, I'm forgetful, so I forget to memorize it every Sunday, <laughs> right? But it's like that awkward thing where that would be it. That would be kind of that piece of the past I mm. could bring in. You know, and and recognize that that goes you know quite far back, uh, well, and live into that. Look, if you if you really want to get into the that piece of the past, you're going to pick up the Gospel yeah. Truth by Gary Machuda, and you're going to read all about Aramaic and Hebrew, and then the Greek, and then you'll get into the and Latin. Then See, I'll get to Latin. This is my great. I, I, I'm reading this book, going. I really wish that I had taken a Hebrew class when I was in seminary. I had the chance. I decided it wasn't mandatory, so I was going to skip it. I took my Greek class, which was mandatory, and uh, remember nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I really wish I understood these ancient languages better. But like you said, Gary, fortunately, not all of us have to be scripture scholars, but we can benefit from the work of scripture scholars, which is great. Anyway, (laughs) listen, Gary, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Uh, The book is The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught by Gary Machuda. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's published by Emmaus Road Publishing. Check it out. It's a great book. It's a great read. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Gary, thank you so much for your work and for what you gave us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform, following us at the Tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at VeritasCatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.